Witchlit is on a summer hiatus while we settle into our new Witchlit HQ. And rather than leave a blank space in the feed, we're taking the old TV network approach and bringing you some summer reruns from our first two seasons. Today's re-release is my conversation with Corey Thomas Hutchison. Corey graciously, gamely, agreed to be the first guest on Witchlit and was a huge resource for getting Witchlit off the ground. I'm also proud to announce that Thousand Bolt Press will be publishing his new book with his podcasting co-host Lane Fuller later this summer. Conjuring the Commonplace, a guide to everyday enchantment and junk door magic is a treasure trove of folklore and magic made from the mundane, and we can't wait to get it into your hands. Welcome to Witchlit, a podcast where we talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, fiction author, witch, and nosy Scorpio. Our guest this week is Corey Thomas Hutchison. He is the co-host of the popular podcast, New World Witchery, Chasing Foxfire, and Myth Taken, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast, and author of the book, New World Witchery, A Trove of American Folk Magic. He has a doctorate in American studies with specializations in folklore, religion, and ethnicity from Penn State. He is a contributor to the Oxford Handbook of American Folklore and Folklife Studies and American Myths, Legends, and Tall Tales. You can find him online at CoreyThomasHutchison.com or NewWorldWitchery.com. Hi, Corey, and welcome to the show. Hello, Victoria. How are you? <laughs> I get, I get the, the late night radio voice. So. I know. Well, because my bio makes me sound like I'm this like, <laughs> like this, this professor in the ivory tower, like, hello, step into my office. <laughs> Come sit down. Have a, have a like seat. Like yeah. But I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. It's very, uh, it's very much an honor to kind of uh, be a part of this. And I'm excited to see what questions you have and where, where we go with this. Yeah. And I guess before I get started with questions, I just want to thank you for your, um, I guess cheerleading support on getting this off the ground. I, we talked about this like in the before times, which feels like a thousand years ago, and it's for real taken a while to come to fruition. So I appreciate all your help and yeah, advice no, I'm along the way. Thrilled you're doing it. I, you know, you know, I've been friends for a while, so we know, you know, <laughs> both of us know uh, how difficult it can be to be a writer, uh, and uh, and we also know podcasting um is an involved process at this point yes. so yes. and maybe a great way to procrastinate writing i don't Indeed. i'm trying not to think that about they, that too much see i find that they feed each other like the stuff that we talk about in the podcast will oftentimes make me go i need to do something i need to do a project with this so Good. but maybe that's just Good. me all right so let's jump in yep. so my first question for all the guests is why write why write well uh i, I don't know it's it, so there's this tweet that goes around um, that that I think is really interesting that says, um, do you like, I'm going to see if I can remember the phrasing of it. Um, do you like doing the thing or do you, or, or, or are you, do you like doing the thing or do you like being good at the thing? Right. Um, and so that's one of those things where I think about with writing, um, I've always been told I'm very good at it. I'm always very, very good um, at writing by, you know, teachers and things like that kind of coming up. I had an English degree. Um, it's something that I've, you know, always sort of been able to do. But it wasn't until we started doing the podcast and I started thinking about like, well, what if I actually wanted to to do something serious with this that I started to think about, you know, do I actually like this? Do I actually love doing writing? And I found that the reason that I am writing is because um, when I get in front of that, you know, the keyboard and when I get in front of research, when I get in front of whatever it is that I want to talk about, um, 
it, it, it just starts to sort of really bloom and blossom and, and feel like I'm in, uh, in a happy place. I'm in the, the place where I want to be and where I'm doing, um, something that maybe just maybe, um, is going to hit somebody the right way and make an impact in a, in a positive way might, um, help them find something they never found before. Um, maybe I'll find the way to put something that nobody's done it before. Um, that's sort of, I love the sort of the idea that you get to do something novel, um, <laughs> novel, huh? Um, and that you kind of get to, you kind of get to connect with people through words, which is its own kind of weird magic in a way. Um, I just find that, that that's, that's a very, very special sort of thing. So uh, does that, is that too esoteric of an answer? No, no, I think it's good. I mean, a, a lot of people say it because I don't know how not to. I mean, I think that's mm. true for a lot of people too, but I like the way you came to it. Cause one of like, one of the things I wanted to ask was like your writing journey, but you kind of talked about that a little bit already mm. about why you came to it this way. So do you feel like you kind of approached writing more like from an academic point than a creative point or, I mean, it sounds kind of like both really. That's a, it's a wonderful question. Um, it's funny because this gets into that whole, like being good at the thing versus, uh, you know, loving the thing. And if, um, I, I find that I, I'm very confident when it comes to writing for sort of the nonfiction framework, right. When I'm writing something where it's, you know, research-based, um, or even kind of personal narrative where I'm kind of exploring a particular topic through my own experiences, but where it's all sort of factually centered, um, I'm very comfortable there. I, I have tried my hand at fiction. I actually have a huge chunk of a novel written that I have not done anything with because that terrifies me. Um, that I actually get scared about the idea of people reading fiction that I write um, more than the nonfiction. So, uh, it, you know, I, I feel like you can be creative in both the fiction and nonfiction worlds, but but nonfiction is definitely kind of the comfort zone I work in versus fiction, which I think is very vulnerable in a different way. Um, I think that you wind up exposing, you wind up exposing a different side of your creative nerve when you do that. And it can make you very vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Like writing nonfiction, especially research-based nonfiction is like, this is how I think. And writing fiction is more like, this is how I feel a little bit yeah. too. Like, it, like you're right. It is a lot more vulnerable and definitely it's, easy it's to an get imposter world. syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, the, it's, it's, it's an inner world that you've created. It's a, it's a landscape that you, you inhabited with characters and you populated it. Um, and you, you've lived there for a while, but no one else has seen it. No one else knows about it until you share it and, I don't know. There's something, there's something very, very special and very, very um, harrowing about that experience, yeah. I think. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, having fiction out in the world, it's like you want people to love those people you've lived with in your head for years as much as you do. And you hope that you've explained yeah. it well enough that they, they do. And, yes. Or, you know, at least someone does besides, you know, like in my case, my sister. <laughs> so it's like somebody, hopefully somebody will love these people that, you know, have been haunting me as much as I love them. Right. So you have published a book yourself and then you've also published through traditional press with Llewellyn. So what did like, actually, once the books are finished, like once the manuscript's done, what did getting published actually look like for you? What was that journey like? 
Sure. Um, do you want me to talk about both the self and the mainstream or mostly if the you, mainstream? If you'd like to, or mostly, you know, whatever you feel like you want to talk about either one. Uh, I'll start with the most, I'll start with the mainstream and then to kind of just do a little comparison on the um, self. But uh, the mainstream publication process is really, it's really interesting because um, at least in the nonfiction side of things, you don't actually have the entire book written necessarily, um, which is kind of neat. And I know that there are some fiction authors who, who can, who can um, pitch a book based on a few chapters and an outline um, and, st and get a publishing contract and kind of work the same way. But, um, but a lot of, a lot of fiction writers that I know, they're really trying to do a complete story. They, the story may need editing. It may need expansion. It may need a little tweaking, but they're really trying to do a complete story. So publishing in the nonfiction world, um, you don't have to do that. You, you have your idea. You do write, you know, a chapter or two to make sure that you, have, there's a real sense of what you, what you're writing about, you know what you're writing about, um, that you can write about it effectively. But then you're really putting together kind of a prospectus for, you know, here's what I think this book's going to be about. Here's who I think will buy the book as well. There's this whole marketing component that you have to consider as, as a part of this and say, you know, here's where I think this book is going to be able to land uh, an audience. And here's um, where I think it's going to, it would have an audience if we can find a way to make that connection and things like that. Um, and then once that prospectus uh, you know, that proposal is into the uh, publisher, there's this kind of waiting game where you're kind of saying like, well, okay, was it, was it good enough or was it not good enough? And it's, you know, um, when I published with Llewellyn, I got a, a response not too far um, down the line, um, whereas I've actually got a proposal out right now with a, a much bigger publisher and I've been waiting for a couple of months. So um, it's, you know, the size of the publisher is also going to impact that to some extent. But then once the proposal is accepted, um, there's a very um, it's a, it's it's a very long process at that point, um, and it's not a but that's not a bad thing necessarily. Um, in some ways, uh, you know, I'm a Gemini, so I have a, a thousand and one irons in the fire at all times, um, and so it can be very easy for me to be like, okay, I'm gonna you know do this book and this book and this book and this book and this book, but. Um, what working through a publisher does is sometimes it'll sort of put the brakes on that just a little bit. So you say, okay, slow down, make sure this book is the way you want it to be first. Um, and so you're working with an editor at the press. Um, they're going to go over your stuff. They have things like vision meetings where they will, um, you know, talk about things like cover design. They'll talk about a potential title revisions or title changes. Um, they'll talk about layouts. They'll talk about illustrations that are going to be necessary. Um, they'll talk about, um, you know, potential marketing uh, avenues. They'll talk about launch days, all this kind of stuff. They get back to you with some notes from that. You continue working on the book, turn in your manuscript. It goes through a whole nother round of edits. <laughs> the edits, the edits don't stop for, for quite a while, actually. <laughs> um, but eventually you reach a point where it's sort of like, okay, this is where it should be. Everybody's kind of happy about it and excited about it. And then it kind of goes off to production. And again, you just wind up kind of waiting for, uh, I think between my final, final, final draft being in and getting kind of galleys back, it was another two to three, maybe even four months before, um, before my book officially sort of, uh, hit, hit shelves from that point. And all in all, um, from the time that I, my proposal was accepted until the time the book hit shelves was something around 18 to 20 months. So it is a slower process to go that traditional route. Um, but you have a lot of, you have a lot of team support along the way, which is really interesting. Um, because, you know, we think of a, being an author sometimes as being kind of a very solitary, you know, 
prospect is a very solitary sort of way of working. But when you take the manuscript and put it in the hands of other people, then all of a sudden it becomes a much more sort of collaborative thing to, to take it over the finish line. And I think that's really interesting, especially compared to self-publishing where you really do everything yourself and it stays very solitary. And in some ways there's some, some benefit to that because you have more creative control, obviously. Um, but you also have more responsibility for it. Uh, and so, um, it's, it's very easy to sort of tie up your identity into the, into the self-published books in some ways. Um, but yeah, so it's just, it's a different experience between the two. Yeah. And yeah, that makes sense. Especially like, I think you're, you're right. That self-publishing is, it is a solitary thing. Although I think self-publishing, especially in the last few years, as it's really taken off has become more collaborative because people hire a lot of stuff out where, yes. you know, initially people were doing all of that by themselves. If I had to design a cover for any of my books, it would be a nightmare. So like no one would buy that book. <laughs> Judging <laughs> by the cover would not go well. So yeah, yeah, well, I'm glad that that has become more collaborative. Uh, for sure. And, and, and it's, it's neat because you do wind up kind of making, once you've sort of put your foot in the doorway of all, all that, you do start, start to see connections. So for example, I'm, you know, trying to, you know, I'm connected with you all. Um, you have your impress and that's, that's a really wonderful avenue. I have, um, an editor that I've been talking to about, um, a children's book. And so that's been a neat process too, to sort of be like, Oh, there's, you know, these, there's the, all these people that you can sort of build your, uh, your web, uh, of, of connection with. And, and it becomes, it becomes kind of a, a neat social experiment in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the teamwork thing happens yeah. in self-publishing. It's just, um, it's just different. It just looks different. Yeah. You're right. It, just it is. It's very decentralized. Yeah. Which, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but no, I mean, there are a lot of advantages not. with traditional publishing in that, you're not having to track those people down. They exist at the publishing house or the publishing right. house is responsible for doing all of that instead of having you having to hire a graphic designer and someone to do layout and all that stuff. So, right. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the funny side of that is that sometimes they'll, they'll push stuff back to you and say, hmm, well, we don't have somebody here to do that. So can you do it? <laughs> and that can be a little a little daunting that may be more of a, a sort of medium-sized publisher thing yeah so. i think with medium and small publishers they're especially now a, a lot of that does come back to the author like i yeah. I've, I've just talked to a lot of people who have published traditionally and published you know published themselves or with tiny presses and like unless you're on the new york bestseller list regularly you're mm -hmm. kind of a one-person show in some ways even though yeah. you might be working with a bigger publisher for sure so now that you are a published author, how much of your life is writing? Like, I know for a fact that you have multiple day jobs besides writing, but I'm just curious, like how you kind of break out your work between writing and the podcasts and teaching and all that. So how does that, how does that work for you? And where does writing fit in to that kind of yeah. insane schedule you have, you Gemini person? <laughs> yeah, that is definitely, um, yeah, I sometimes you know curse the, curse the day <laughs> for, for being a Gemini, um, but um, but no, I, I love having so many irons in the fire too. keeps me keeps me going. Um, that's an interesting question because it kind of ties back to that first question: is like you know why write? Um, in in a lot of ways, I find since publishing, it's kind of like um, you know I hear it described a lot this way. It's kind of like when you get a tattoo. And the first one, you know, can be really 
kind of an intense experience and people, you know, put a lot of time and thought into it in some cases, or they'll really kind of get, you know, um, particular about things or, you know, it can be, it, it can, it's just this kind of, it's, it's a roller coaster to kind of get over that first tattoo. But once you've done that, then all of a sudden it's kind of like, when am I getting my next tattoo? When's the next tattoo? What am I going to do next? And so once I published, I mean, the self-published book definitely put me kind of in a, in a place where I was like, I think I can do more. Um, and especially given kind of what I've got in, you know, sort of in store in notes and things like that. I think I can do more. And then once this new book has come out, um, the most recent book has come out, it's, it's something where I know I sort of find like all the, all the jobs sort of mentally have become the way I support my writing habit, you know, <laughs> the way I support the, the next book coming out in some ways. So they really do. Uh, that really does wind up eating up a lot of mental capacity and a men mental space, but it, it's, it's for me, at least it's a very uh, inspiring place to be mm -hmm. where I'm, I'm eager. I am willing to kind of do a lot of other things just so that I can kind of get to that, the next book and get the next idea going. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately writing is, I think the day is if like, you know, most writers being able to make a living, just writing, mm. they're slim. Like it happens, yeah. but it's not as often probably as it used to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, my understanding of that is that like, if you like, so yeah, the, the writer who can make a living off of selling one or two books is not, it's just not there anymore. Um, you know, even if you sell a New York times bestseller, um, there's a, there's a point at which that stops being an income that you can count on. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, unless you are a, a mass, like unless you're a John Grisham, right. Or unless you're a, uh, you know, uh, some other kind of like major, major author, then you're, you're going to struggle to, to sort of make the, the finances support that. But I do hear, you know, from other folks, um, like Morgan Daimler, um, you know, they're able to make a living basically mm -hmm. as a writer. Um, and they do that through things like, uh, one, they have some Patreon support, that sort of pays for sort of a backstage pass to their writing work, but they also publish a lot. They publish, mm -hmm. I think they publish something like 30 or 40 books in the past decade. Um, and once you have a certain saturation point within the market, um, if you have enough books out there, even if all of them are only selling, you know, a small fraction that adds up enough to, mm -hmm. uh, I think they essentially are making a, a single person income off of that. So, yeah. Yeah. I do think there is that, like there's a tipping point, between just how, what your back catalog looks like. And especially if you're self-published and you're getting mm -hmm. a bigger cut of that back catalog. Right. I think that that is one way to achieve it. I, I have a writing friend who does that, that will yeah. we'll be an interview later in the podcast series. <laughs> well, good. Yeah. So I think that's um, definitely, it's possible that most people are not in a position where they can write 30 or 40 books in 10 years. No. Like that's, that's a challenge. I mean, I'm a right. one book a year person, like just barely. Right. So, And that's, I mean, that requires a certain level of support within your life mm -hmm. already. So for, for sure, that's, that's not something that just anybody can, can dive in and commit to. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to have some other either support income or some kind of passive income that you can live off of while you right. create that much. Yeah. 
Yes, this, or you're this one is of the why so many can write ten thousand words a day, or something. sure, sure. Yeah, this is the what you know the pa- the, the patron system mm-hmm. <laughs> used to exist behind publishing, where you know you could have a, a wealthy patron who would you know set aside the two thousand pounds a year for you yeah. as you write whatever you want to write. Oh, when you could live on what the equivalent of like four thousand dollars a year, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so for so in your writing, like, is there a day that like, this is my perfect writing day, like a sweet spot. Do you have like rituals around that or something? Are, I guess, are you precious about your writing? Or are you just like anywhere I can get a scrap down? This is what I do. I'm very much the, the scrapbook uh, writer where I have notes. I have, so, I have Google docs upon Google docs of just stuff that I copy and paste and pile together so that I can then sift through it later. I'm not like, super disorganized about it. I, I, I say that and it sounds like I, you know, have no idea where things are, but I very much do. Um, I'll even create databases where I'll, you know, have, I have whole spreadsheets that are just bits of folklore. That was part of how I was able to kind of put this, this one book together was I just had a spreadsheet running of like all this different folklore I was collecting um, that was, you know, able to be sorted and indexed. So I could sort of see like, oh, okay, so here's these five things I want to talk about in this chapter uh, and sort of connect them all up. So I do that. Um, and then, I mean, I don't, <laughs> we were on camera earlier and, I, and thankfully my camera wasn't angled down because uh, I just finished with another writing project recently. And, and what happens is as I get closer and closer to the finish of that writing project, um, slowly the books that I'm using for my resources will start to pile up around me in a sort of book nest slash tower. Mm-hmm. And I know that the book, I know that I am about to be done uh, with this project when those towers start to fall in on me occasionally. And I start to get <laughs> injured by my research. And I'm like, I'm almost there. This is great. Like, this is the signal. This is the signal. Exactly. Oh. So, um, so I was going to ask you like, what was the seed for new world retreat? But it sounds like, the seed was really like the podcast and academia yeah. and like you were collecting this stuff all along. Yeah. So did you have that before you kind of had the idea for new world witchery? Because it's just so dense with so much information <clears throat> or did new world witchery come out of the fact that you already had like squirreled all this stuff away? It mostly is the scrolling, all this stuff. I mean, and the funny thing is like, it is so dense, but I think there's another 40,000 or more words that I actually cut out of the manuscript that's just sitting in another document somewhere else. So book two is basically halfway <laughs> No, <written>. probably not, <laughs> weirdly. No, like it's just going to sit there until I can figure out what to do with it because it don't, it, it's not going to really fit, you know, any of the projects I have in mind next. So who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, who knows what will happen to it? Maybe no one will ever see it. Maybe it'll be my Kafka papers that get burned upon my, upon my death. Um, how did you approach, like, I mean, if you had that much information, like, how did you winnow out? Like, did you work with the editor to do that? Did, were those decisions you made about what was too much or like, how did you get there? Both. Um, uh, I've, you know, one, I had a word count that I was trying to get as close as possible to. And so I would, you know, go back through my drafts and sort of say, okay, I'm, I love this part. I love the way it sounds. It's just not right for the the overall book or it's just not going to actually accent this section as well as it needs to be accented. It doesn't provide any of the information I want it to provide, or I could say it all in a sentence. And so I'll pull it out and and move it aside. And then my editor is also very good about doing that same thing. Um, And 
I mean, you know this from being a writer. Sometimes you just kind of have to have the kill your darlings mindset, right? Yes. So I like, I love this, but it doesn't work here. <laughs> yep. And that's 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 what these other documents that that no one will ever see here for, so that they can still exist. Yeah, I have a no running document them. when I'm writing that is called like whatever the title of the project is, offcuts. Yep. And so I just if I really like it, and I'm like, no, it doesn't work. I just you know copy and paste it into that other document that lives behind what I'm working on the whole time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's the, you have to do that because we say kill your darlings, but what you're really doing is is sending your darlings upstate to live on the farm, right? right. Mm. <laughs> With the old family dog. Where they can run free. And, <laughs> Where they can run free. Yes. And I, I have this idea, like if I, for some, if I did ever set up a Patreon, I was like, would someone want to actually see that document? Would they be fascinated as I am with it? Or would they go, why are you showing me this? <laughs> like, I was like, thanks for showing me your dirty laundry. <laughs> There's a little bit of that, I wonder. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you had a lot of research already done for this book, but mm-hmm. like when you were researching, I assume there were still things you had to plug in. So, what for you, like even as a fiction writer, because I write a lot of, I have to do a lot of research for the stuff I create. Like sometimes it's like the balance of which is more enjoyable, the research or the writing. Right. Like for you with this book or just like in writing in general, like how does that break down for you? Is like the research really the part that makes you glow or is it the actually getting it on the page? It's, I mean, it's both. Uh, the whole thing is such a, such a wonderful um, feeling. It's, it, it's, it's exhausting and it's tiring. And, and I mean, and my, my, my family will tell you when I'm getting down to the last couple of weeks before a deadline, um, I, 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 I've never been grumpier in my life than that period of time. Um, just be, just because I sort of have, you know, pressure on me to sort of finish this thing up. And part of it is the pressure to finish it up. Part of it is the like, I, you know, need to get this done, need to get this done. And there's, so there's the stress of that. But part of it is also the sort of like, I'm going to have to be done with this soon. I'm going to have to say goodbye to this. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of a grumpiness that comes with like, oh, I don't, you know, I wanted to stay here for a little longer. I wanted to keep doing this. I had so much more I, I could be doing, but I have to, I have to finish. I have to be done. So, um, so that, you know, the research is wonderful. I love doing the the reading and taking the notes. And, and I really love when ideas start to synthesize and they start to come together. And I say, oh, this thing that I read over here in this book and this thing that I read over here in this collection of folktales, those two things seem to speak to each other, but nobody, nobody that I've seen has put them together yet. I'm going to do that. And as soon as I, I start feeling that happening, then I want to, you know, hit the keyboards and start writing. So, but it's, it's, it's a really wonderful sort of mix of that. And I'm, I'm very happy to kind of be in that space, mm-hmm. um, both research and the writing portion of it. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's the sweet spot, right? If, you, if both parts are enjoyable mm-hmm. and one doesn't feel like, you know, torture. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, for, for me, the torture side of it is if I have to do, um, so for some of the stuff that I do, I'm doing academic work. For example, I have to do what's called an institutional review board um, proposal. Mm-hmm. And that, that is that is a little bit more of the torture because you're not actually doing the research. You're just telling people that you're going to do the research and that you promise that you'll do it ethically. And here's how you can prove that you're going to do it ethically. And please, 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 you know, don't tell me I can't do this research. So that's a little exhausting. But otherwise, it's, you know, everything else is pretty good. Thankfully, I assume you did not have to do that for this book. No institutional review board. It was, not, it was not harmed the in book. the making of New World Witchery. <laughs> no, I drew upon a little bit of research I had done um, for my dissertation, which did have mm-hmm. to go through an institutional review board um, at one point. But 
um, which is, it's really funny because really in institution, IR, well, they're, they're, they're really called IRBs, but um, IRBs are really for human subject research and right. more like, you know, if I give you this pill, do you die a lot or just a little bit? You know, like that's the stuff where they're trying to avoid ethical conflicts. But if you're talking to people, um, they do make you kind of go through this process as well. So that's, um, just so it, it's tricky. Just like, trigger yeah. someone's trauma or like just say so you'll handle those things. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I deal so they, with IRBs a little bit in my day job. Not me personally, but in the work that we do, they're involved yeah. pretty heavily. So, yeah, so I, they can I'm be, familiar with. <laughs> I've, I've been through that little, training. I've been through that training. So. Yeah, they're there for a good reason, but they, they can be a little onerous to get through for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, like in the research and writing for this book, like how do you or did you feel like it impacted like your actual practice? Like we get into kind of like mm-hmm. the you write about this stuff, but you are also a practitioner. So, how did do you feel like it had an impact on like your practice as you were working, or were there things that you took out of it that definitely have made a change in how you practice your own craft? I guess outside of the craft of writing. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that sort of happened was as I, it really, the stuff that changed was as I put the book together and saw, saw how it was all going to be organized, I sort of realized, oh, if I do it this way, it actually becomes almost a system of practice that resembles the system of practice I currently have, or at least the sort of steps, steps of practice I do. So there's like, you know, this is, it's ridiculous of me to do this, but I sort of divided the the whole book into what I call 13 rights, um, with mm-hmm. each right having, you know, between one and three or four chapters covering different aspects of, in this particular case, witchcraft, um, North American folk magic and things like that. Um, and so working through that, I was sort of like, oh, well, yeah. So, so you kind of would need to know a little bit about this and a little bit about this and a little bit about this. And I sort of looked at my practice and I was like, oh, okay, these are all things that I have learn to do through my practice of folk magic, but I would never have codified them. I would never have said like, oh, that's a system of of magic or witchcraft. It's just the stuff I do. But now I can look at it and kind of say like, oh, the the writing helped me sort of reflect on that and see it as, as things that were actually much more woven together than, than I realized that they were. So um, with a, a good example of this would be um, understanding that um, you know, the, the witch flight that I've been reading about and studying about in some of the sort of folk tales and folklore, um, that is reflected in certain aspects of my, my practice that, you know, I don't necessarily, I'm not literally going out and flying on a broomstick. Right. Um, but I can see like, Oh, that does get reflected in, for example, things where I'm, you know, working in sort of a dream space or, or, or a hedge crossing space. Um, and then kind of, uh, you know, connecting that to, okay, well then, that also ties to the area that I live in, um, which gets into, you know, the area where I, t- I talk about um, the landscape and things like that and kind of what are the local legends about this? And so where am I what, going in these, so these journeys, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, so in, in your academic writing, do you find that actually being a practitioner changes the way you approach academic writing or does it change the way that people, that other people approach your academic writing? Because I think there's always this idea that as an academic, you're somehow an observer, not a participant, even though a lot Mm. of times we, you know, in academic writing, you also are a participant in some ways. Has that been different, like in in your academic writing? Um, Yeah, I find that there's actually probably more suspicion from within the academy of what I do, um, because uh, 
not that they're you know against you know anybody having a particular belief set or belief system, but it's a sort of like looking looking at it and saying like, well, you're supposed to be sort of this rational academic. Um, these people are you know saying they are doing witchcraft. That seems like those two things you know the, the those don't merge very well for a lot of people. Um, and so it does take a little bit of effort uh, for people to kind of understand that. And then to kind of on the flip side, I do think that there's a little bit of suspicion within aspects of the witchcraft community against anybody who is academic because the like you said they sort of assume you're there to observe and there is a history of academics coming in and sort of observing um and making some very sort of callous judgments about groups that are not their own uh mm -hmm. and and i get that but that's the thing is like i'm sort of in there participating and observing uh so many of these different traditions i mean some of them are not my own traditions and so i do have to have kind of a little bit of a boundary space and say like is it okay that i'm i'm here but i find most people once once they get to know you once that you're sort of in that that sort of collaborative environment with them where you're you know sharing a little bit of you and they're sharing a little bit of them it tends to work pretty well i think people are much mm -hmm. more open once that dialogue happens so yeah do you feel like being I always kind of hesitate to call people professional witches, but you're definitely a public witch, I guess. Yeah. Do you think that that has kind of given you a little bit of, I don't know, and just made those conversations a little easier because people have some expectation of you from the community because you have been, you know, your podcast is more than a decade old. I mean, you've, yeah. you've been around for a while. Yeah. No, being, being the, uh, the elderly peepaw of the, the pagan community. Right. Um, you say that and you know, I'm older than you, which I find amusing. <laughs> I'm just thinking in terms of like how long we've been doing the podcast yeah. at this point. No, 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 no. Yeah. Um, but, um, but no, the, the sort of public image, you're right. I think that does help. I think it's helped me, um, whenever people are from within sort of a witchcraft or a witchy space to say like, oh, oh, we can kind of trust you. What's really interesting, of course, is that there are a lot of people who practice folk magic that um, are not fond of witchcraft. Like if I call it witchcraft, then they're not interested. So mm -hmm. I do have to kind of, that's where actually the academic pass card can be really interesting because I can sort of be like, oh, I study folk magic and witchcraft. And I'm not trying to be duplicitous about that, but sort of be like, I really do. I, I do study mm -hmm. folk magic and witchcraft. And your tradition is interesting. Um, I understand that you are not a witch and I understand that you are not practicing maybe even what you would call folk magic, but I'm really interested in the in the folk beliefs that you have. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to talk about those. And, and so, so it can, it, the academic side can actually kind of get me around some of those hurdles in some cases. Yeah. Well, I do, I think it's interesting. I mean, there's, it seems like, especially like in the last couple of years, and maybe it's just because I've been paying attention more or listening, but there is definitely a conversation about using the term witch or witchcraft and mm -hmm. what that means and who gets to use it, which I, that conversation is more troublesome to me, but um, like what, what you're doing, is it witchcraft kind of thing? And mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. I just, for me, like, it feels like such a powerful reclaiming of that word to own it. Mm -hmm. But I know that it's also like has such derogatory meaning for some people that there's just no getting past that either. So I think what you're saying about, you know, this is folk magic or folk practice even to get the M word out of there too. Yeah. Uh, and make some space for people. Yeah. There, there are a lot of people who don't want their 
practice sort of labeled within that capacity. I have a, I have a really good friend, for example, he's a, a Braucher, a powwow in the Pennsylvania German tradition, very much kind of works within the Christian framework of that. He and I get along great. We are, are very, very good communicators with one another. But I would never presume to say, well, I really like the witchcraft you're doing <laughs> because he would be mm -hmm. like, I'm not doing witchcraft. Um, and, and so there, there does have to be that kind of, you know, I, I try to listen to people talk about what they're doing in their own terms and then reflect that back at them as much as possible. Now, when I go to sit down and write a book, sometimes I will sort of say, okay, academically, I'm going to categorize this as magic, but I'm also going to recognize that this may not be what they would call it. But right. from a, a sort of um, categoriz categorical approach, I, I would definitely say this sort of falls under that umbrella, um, but it's not the language they would use. So I have to be you know, aware of that. Does he think what you're doing is witchcraft? Does he refer to it that way? Yes, but he's also kind of okay with that to a certain mm -hmm. extent. Um, so it's a, a situation where, it, again, we've, we've had enough kind of conversations and dialogues that he's like, oh, what you do, that's great. You know, you're doing folk witchcraft that sort of fits within your practice and your paradigm. Um, and it's not calling on the same things that I'm calling on. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he sees um, it as something separate, but not necessarily derogatory. From what exactly, right. Oh, he's he's sense. not afraid of it. He has friends within that sort of witchier space. Um, he gets, you know, a little touchy about people trying to apply that in his space. Um, but he's more than willing to sort mm -hmm. of say, like, you have you have your space, too. So that's that's fine. So, yeah, no, that makes sense. Hmm. Okay. So. I don't know. I, I feel like I could talk about that aspect of it all day, but that kind of gets us away from writing and your book to talk about like this, you know, kind of term within that, I guess. But um, so, but it does lead me to the next question, which is like, what do you see? Like you've talked about like your research and how you relate to the people involved in your research. What do you see your relationship as with your readers or what's your responsibility to readers? Uh, my responsibility to my readers is to try and be um, truthful and factual as far as I possibly can, um, you know, to, to the point where I, I try to footnote as much as, as I can. I try to include bibliographic references. I want to be transparent about where information comes from. Um, I find that's actually a really big problem in a lot of uh, witchy books or has been in the past. I think mm -hmm. that's improving. Um, not knowing... Uh, where witchy information comes from. And this is, you know, a good example of this, and I'm, I'm not trying to drag this person, but Scott Cunningham um, has some really great books of folk magic um, that I loved. Uh, there's some of my introductory books, but so many of the spells in there, you know, you wouldn't know where they come from. Mm -hmm. um, he has a bibliography at the back, but he's not connecting those to any of the spells that you've actually seen in the book. Mm -hmm. Nary a footnote in sight. Yeah, right, exactly. No kind of like, even even if he had a sort of a line reference, like this is something done in the Ozarks. Well, okay, great. That gives me, at least I can then go in the bibliography and be like, ah, oh, Vance Randolph, Ozark folk magic. Okay, boom, mm -hmm. there we go. Um, that, that's something I can I can follow. It wasn't expected of him. That wasn't the the situation he was writing in. Um, and so, so there's no, none of that transparency. But I, for me, it's really important to have that transparency because I want people to then, I, I don't want people to look at my book and say, this is the final word on anything. I want people to look at the book and say, this is such a great place to jump off and start um, and, and go further. Um, I want people to bump into a, a story um, in that book and go like, I want to know more about this. Where do I find out more about this? And, and start digging on their own using the references um, that I've given them as a, as a, as a, you know, a compass point to, to begin with. That's, that's the relationship I want to have with my readers is that we are in 
um, we're all on the sort of journey together. We're all on the adventure together. Um, I, I'm providing as much information as I can to help make the map easier to read, but they still get to, they still get to go explore as much as they want. And spend a lot of money on books. <laughs> <laughs> I am an enabler. Uh, I was going to say fronts, my TBR so. and, you know, TV read and TV purchase list from reading your book has quadrupled over the last Yeah, yeah. You know, couple That's months. my fault. I, yeah. But I it's good. It's a good thing, you know. <laughs> It's just more more people that maybe I will get to talk to on the show. So there you go. Um, so what are you working on now? Like you said, you just sent off a manuscript for the well end, but like, what are what are you looking at coming up? Like, what are your current sure. or upcoming projects that you can share? Because I understand there's probably, you know maybe stuff yeah. you can't talk about to you, but. Yeah, no. So um, I've got uh, the book that just went off to Llewellyn, uh, which I can absolutely discuss. That is going to be one of their complete books, which are their kind of really big guides. They've done one on ceremonial magic and they've done one on tarot and stuff like that. This one is uh, American Folk Magic. Um, And in that, I've sort of gathered together about two dozen different practitioners of folk magic and had them all write short personal essays explaining things about their practices. uh, sometimes offering works from their practices, offering a little bit of history of their practices, just to sort of, sort of give a window on just how many different ways of practicing folk magic in North America there are. Um, so we have everything from uh, that, that powwow uh, practitioner uh, is in there. Um, we have um, a New England cunning man. We have uh, a couple of folks working in the Appalachian Mountains, um, uh, a fellow who's writing about the Ozark magical traditions, somebody who does hoodoo in Detroit. Um, we have somebody who's a Kumi practitioner in Minnesota, um, uh, a Taoist, uh, a Taoist folk magician uh, living in California. Um, so just tons and tons of people kind of from all over that are able to sort of share their perspectives. And really, I'm really excited to be able to sort of curate that collection of, of folks. Mm-hmm. It makes me sad because uh, <laughs> um, it's the complete book. And, and I acknowledge this the, in, in the, the uh, sort of conclusion, so to say, it's a, it's a complete book, but it can't ever really be complete because there's so many more that we, we just couldn't fit them. You could never fit everybody in. It's just, yeah. it's so, so big. Um, so maybe the there'll Fox be more. Like set of <laughs> it would be you'd have to folk magic yeah you'd have to do that so that one's going to be coming out sometime in late 2022 I think okay. I'm excited about that um, I've got another book uh, Lane and I are co-writing a book um, and I don't want to get into too much about what it's about yet but uh, we do have that out for consideration with some publishers right now mm-hmm. um, uh, we're uh, see that I'm going to be doing a reissue of. Uh, 54 Devils, which is my book on folk magic and playing cards. I'm going to be reissuing that with some additional material, expanding some things, uh, mm-hmm. adding some stuff in. Because uh, that is almost 10 years old at this point, and I've realized that there's some stuff I want to add in mm-hmm. to that. Uh, so I'm going to do that since I have I have creative control, so I can do that whenever yep. I want. Yep, your 10-year edition, your 10-year anniversary yeah. edition. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it'll wind up being the technically the nine-year anniversary edition. But <laughs> it that all works, works, too. So. I, I um, like it being, you know. A little it's off. A little off. thing. A little off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, and then I'm working on a couple of other uh, research and writing projects as well. One somewhat academic, uh, uh, a couple that are a little more esoteric and a little weird. And then, like I said, I have that fiction piece floating around in there, and I keep kind of going back into it and poking at it and seeing, like, is is it going to come back to life? Do I do I really want to see it out there in the world? So who knows? Maybe that'll yeah. find a home. Well, I mean, if you need a fiction. Like whip cracker, let me know. Like I'm absolutely happy, I'm happy yeah. to cheerlead you on that road. So fantastic! It is. It is 
sometimes the scary road, but it is rewarding too. So to get those, to get those people out in the world that have been in your head. It's not a bad thing. Indeed. Great. So where like, and obviously people can go listen to new world witchery, wherever you listen to podcasts and your other podcasts, chasing Foxfire and the Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast, but where else could readers connect with you? Uh, I mean, if you go to newworldbetree.com, that has pretty much everything uh, to connect with us. Honestly, we have a little uh, link tree type thing. Um, it's just newworldbetree.com slash find hyphen us. Um, that will show you pretty much all of our social media accounts. Uh, we're on YouTube, Instagram, uh, sort of on Facebook, um, uh, Twitter, um, you know, somewhat somewhat active there as well. Um, websites, all, all these different places you can you can find this pretty easily. And we'll easily. put all that in the show notes for folks too, just so they can have an easy access to it. So yeah. you know about this is coming because I sent you the thing. So the last question um, is based on my Scorpio nature uh-huh. <laughs> and not and really enjoying talking about things we're not supposed to talk about in polite company. So I'm going to roll a die. Uh-huh. And depending on the number, I will ask you a question related to writing, at least tangentially, about death, sex, religion, politics, or money. Uh-huh. And if I roll a six, you get to pick which one. Okay. So I'm going to roll this very clanky metal uh, D&D die on my desk. <laughs> Five. Money. All right. Okay. So is there... Anything as a writer you are absolutely not willing to do for free? Or is there something as a writer you would never do for money? Ooh, uh, not willing to do for free. That's such an interesting way to put that because, I mean, so much of, you know, New World Witchery was built on the idea of like sharing information freely on the website for so long. Um, That's why I think we amassed the audience we did. Um, So, I mean, I think... (laughs) I'll, I'll say this. I would not be willing to do all of the marketing that I've had to do, the self-marketing, <laughs> um, for free again. <laughs> like, I need to know that there's money involved because it's a very time-consuming thing to yes, do. It will eat your life. Um, it will It will devour every bit of free time, and it's not nearly as rewarding as the writing process is. Um, the flip side of that, though, uh, what would I not be willing to do for money? Um, I'm not I'm not willing to to just outright fabricate facts. I think that's that's terrible um mm-hmm. and and i'm not gonna you know i've i've been approached by by publishers who sort of do want to do this or the whole it will give you the 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 outline and tell you kind of what to write and then you sort of make it your own voice and then we sell that i'm not really interested in doing that and i'm not really interested in writing for people this kind of gets into another one of your topics with the sort of political side of things but mm-hmm. um, I'm not really interested in writing in such a way that um, I, I have to avoid um, standing up for some of the things that I do care about and believe in so uh, you know for example um, uh, queer representation is is important to me uh, you know recognizing the importance of um, uh, Native American, you know, uh, subjugation and, and the, and also the contributions that Native Americans have made over time. That's important to me. Environmentalism is important to me. Um, you know, elevating marginalized people, um, based on, you know, anything from, from gender to ethnicity, um, to class, all of that is important to me. So if somebody's wanting me to, you know, if they basically say like, well, you can write your book, but you can't talk about any of that stuff, mm-hmm. then I'm probably going to say, well, no, I can just write my book and you can just not 
not publish it. How about that? So yeah. <laughs> that's kind of where I go with that. What I'm curious, you know, what about you? What's what's the flip side of that for Ooh, you? Let me turn the tables. Um, yeah, I don't think I would be willing to subjugate my political beliefs or ethics to publish a book. Like I just can't do that. And I had advice like at a writing conference really early on. It's like, you know, if you're going to be on social media, then you shouldn't ever be political. And I was like, if you have problems with my politics, you're probably not the person who's going to enjoy my books. Yeah. Cause they're there. I mean, they're not like, I try not to write like, you know, polemic beat you over the head. Here's your, you know, wheel of morality ending <laughs> to the book, <laughs> but it's woven in there because it's who I am. And that's yeah. the characters have, you know, as much as I want them to be real people out in the world, there are still facets that I've, you know, created. So yeah, I'm just not willing to not be me to do that. And, yeah. you know, I, the other thing I went back and forth on when I was looking at possibly publishing traditionally was if I would use a pen name or my real name. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a lot of people say, you need a pen name because you're a woman, you're writing in, you know, contemporary fantasy, you'll sell better, blah, blah. And I was like, A, I don't think that's true anymore. And B, you know, the, the dream was from the time I started writing in elementary school was that someday I would see a book on the shelf with my name on it. So I'm going to yeah. use my name. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you did that. I mean, I know that that's, and I'm not dragging anybody who, who doesn't, because mm-hmm. I think that there are some legitimate concerns about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, my name is also but, really unique, so I'm easy to find. And, right. I, you know, I appreciate that that is definitely a risk. So Yes. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm very proud of you that, that you were able to say like, no, it's important to me. This this thing is really important to me and I'm going to yeah. I'm going to do this. So if I do write another genre, though, I will have to come up with a pen name. So I think that would be because then you you know, your responsibility to your reader then becomes like, oh, there's this other book by Victoria Rashke that has nothing to do with anything else you've ever read. So I think there, yeah. I see the facilitation of just being kind to your readers by picking a pen name if you write in a different genre. So I yeah. probably would do it in that case, but it would be some variation. I, I really like um, Victoria Schwab that's dead kind of V.E. Schwab or Victoria Schwab. And I was like, yeah. that, that works for me. So yeah. No, I've got, I've actually got a secret pen name for some, um, <laughs> uh, this is true confession times. I know literally <laughs> no one knows about this and I may, I may come back to you and be like, please cut this. Please, please edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> but another thing that I have worked on writing are some sort of paranormal erotic romance <laughs> novels and I have a pen name for those. That would probably be good for your readers to just, you know, yeah. not expect another, you know, New World Witchery volume two and get erotic Right. Romance. And get get hot and sexy werewolf sex. You know, that's not what yeah. they're that's not what they're there for. <laughs> yeah, I'm really sad you didn't get the sex question. <laughs> <laughs> well we managed to cover multiple things in one go. So that's pretty good. Uh, oh no, I think that sounds good. Oh, thank you so much for being on the show. I so appreciate it. And thank you again, like I said at the top for just like encouraging and offering advice and just being generally supportive. I just appreciate it. And you're a part of the reason that this podcast exists. So thank you. Thanks. I mean, you're part of the reason our podcast exists too. I mean, you've been a big supporter over the years and we really appreciate it. So well, thank you. Yeah. Great. And hopefully when your next book comes out, we'll have you back. Fantastic. I would love that. I can get uh, some more of those uh, dice roll, die roll questions. That's right. We'll get, we'll get you on another topic. Well, <laughs> Maybe by then again. I'll have published something under the, the pen name. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, we're going to have your pen name on instead of Corey. Yep. I like it. That's great. Good. Well, Corey, thank you again so much. And I'm sure you and I will talk soon in the real world. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. 
Witchlit is a production of Thousand Volt Press and is edited by Kaifel Agostini, who also designed our logo. Our music is Cosmic Glow by Andrew K. End, licensed from Pixabay. You can find transcripts and all our previous episodes at witchlitpod.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at witchlitpod. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow or subscribe and consider giving us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other witches find the show. Thanks for listening and for reading Witchy. Witchy.